this now the yeah. secret to toilets is that when you flush your toilet they actually all go to arrakis that's right hmm that's what we don't know that's something that that's something that they won't tell you on the woke news that's why it's all sand because it's kitty litter yeah they, they didn't have any scenes oh, of a cat sort of digging their stuff going like on, get down yeah. there i don't want to smell this but it's shit. like the kind of sand like the kitty litter after they peed in it where it's just like a little bit clumpy Mm-hmm. kind of muddy yeah. that's right that's why they keep slipping all the time and that's what di- you, that's what uh spice is made out of what is it like uh, much, you can actually. sift it you can work. sift the sand <laughs> we sift people um okay i'm just gonna get into it uh this is a long-awaited episode of kino lefter mm-hmm. canada's number one film podcast and canada's number one socialism podcast this is the mm-hmm. only podcast where you can hear the truth about historical materialism what Twitter accounts are toxic to follow, mm-hmm. um, which ones will give you based truth about why oh, Stalin did nothing that. wrong. Um, these are the sorts of insights I try mm. to deliver to you every week. And I'm Evan, if you forgot. Um, What's your real name? What's your full name? Uh, so on this call and well, I am I am welcomed in both Siege and Village as Evan, New Mexico. Uh, <laughs> So we're having a little fun here on the call today. We're thinking, you know, in the future, some people will be named after states. Uh, the gentleman who just cracked a drink, uh, Tristan, what state are you named after today? I'm Tristan, Wyoming. Uh, okay. I'm the least, I think, least populous state. So um, I don't like to see people. I don't like to be around people. That's my vibe. Mm, excellent. And we are joined today by the two bad boys of podcasting. That's right. Uh, we've gotten together several times to talk about the works of Taylor Sheridan and Denis Villeneuve, two of our guys. Yeah. Tyler Hawaii. Hello, I'm welcome in both Maui and Kauai. That's beautiful. And you know what? Pause off Hawaii, Harkonnens. All right. <laughs> I'm learning about colonialism and I know it's bad. Sean, Minnesota, what's happening? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's going pretty well. I did not have to look up how to spell Minnesota before I typed it into, uh, the, the name field. I definitely knew how it was spelled and I definitely could point to where it is on a map without, uh, you know, even trying that hard or, uh, getting it's the it land of all. lakes, isn't it? That's I'm, I've been told that many times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You knew their ways as if born to them. That's very interesting. I'll have to I reflect knew, on that. I knew their lakes as if I was born in them. <laughs> so the reason I'm very excited about this episode, sometimes I cover movies on the show that are bad, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, oh, I have to watch this. You can talk a lot about it. But sometimes when you watch a movie that's good, it's like, whoa, that's okay. That's fucked up. Yeah, low-key, maybe twisted even. Mm-hmm. We are mm-hmm. talking about 2021's 10-time Oscar-nominated Denis Villeneuve smash Dune colon part one. A lot of people forget that is the title of the film. I hate, I will go to, I will go on a jihad for this. The film was marketed as Dune. 
when you watch it in cinemas or at home, Dune Part 1. Dune Part 1. That's what we're going with. If you could have given it like a Fellowship of the Ring style, like, like you know, like title, what, what do you think you would have called it? And why would it be Paul's Magical Adventure? And, wh- and why would it be Dessert Power? Dessert <laughs> Power. Um, well, I was going to say something stupid like Herald of the Change or something, but I think, I think Dessert Power. Way of Water. I didn't want to turn this podcast into an episode <laughs> on James Cameron's no, also scientific. You did want to, Evan. Scientific fictional masterpiece, Worm of Water. Um, honestly, like conservation I'm, of water. Anyway, my brain is so bad. I was watching. I've seen Avatar twice. Um, about halfway through each viewing, I said, "You know, it would be sick." Avatar, Avatar versus Dune. Sorry, Evan. It's not Avatar twice. It's Avatar two. <laughs> I, saw, I saw Avatar twice. Uh, <laughs> twice upon a time. Um, yeah, I thought, what if the Tolkoon was swimming around and then suddenly worm? What happens? Worm. Who wins? I think the worm wins. I think the worm would win. <laughs> the the whale couldn't even beat thing? one boat. Let yeah. the worm Look win. Them teeth. <laughs> so, uh, we, of course, we're here to talk about Dune, Denis Villeneuve, uh, maybe even David it. Lynch, maybe even Alejandro Jodorowsky, because this film, I think, is a lightning rod for commentary about aesthetics in film Mm. what people's priorities are when it comes to blockbuster cinema there's a lot to get to Mm -hmm. but i want to go around the horn what's our experience with the dune franchise with the duneverse i can go first i read dune uh i think in high school tristan will be familiar with this of course because we're we're besties um i it took me so fucking long to read dune because i just finished reading i think a song of ice and fire and i was like Dune is going to be exactly like that. Um, that's what I've been led to believe. And then I was like, I don't think I like this Paul character. I think something <laughs> fishy might be going on. Uh, and then it, it's sort of like a Cormac McCarthy book. I finished reading it and I was like, oh, looking back, it's clearly a masterpiece. But in the act of reading it, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to keep my head above the frickin sand. Um, have I seen the David Lynch Dune? I've tried uh, and I couldn't do it. I was not interested in watching it. And I think this is this. We can talk about this later. But I think people who are like, I'm actually going to go to bat for David Lynch's Dune is a better version of the film. It's like, I think David Lynch has already he didn't enjoy the process of making it. And death of the author, whatever. Uh, It's not a good movie, Um, but it is interesting. And I think interesting is all I can say about it. But Tristan. (laughs) Let's, oh, Sean, sorry, you go oh, ahead. I was you, just going to say, people who say that the Lynch version are better, like the people who say that the Bakshi Lord of the Rings is better, they're trolling, and, mm-hmm. and they're trying to make you mad, and they're mm-hmm. not really worth listening to. Oh, it's working. Oh, I'm so pissed. <laughs> it's true. Tristan, uh, how about you? What's your what's your Dune experience? Are, are, is your slip suit uh, fitted slip fashion at the heels? <laughs> it is, uh, and I've checked my seal several times. Uh, I like the Dune franchise, um, I really like the books. I remember because I was best friends with you in high school and I remember when you were reading it and like every day when you would come into our miserable like I don't fucking know like science class you would be you would be listless and confused about what was going on. It seemed like it took you three weeks to get through the Jameis fight because every time I asked you about what's going on is like I don't know man this fight's been going on for 
a hundred pages. <laughs> Wait, there's uh, a guy called Jameis in this fucking book. What are we doing? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I really liked it. Uh, I really liked the books. I read uh, th- the first three books. Um, and that's when it starts to really get into weird stuff like Bindu suspension and like testicle magic and stuff uh starts to happen towards the end of the third book the second book i think is the best one um because i'm annoying but they which book dune messiah or god emperor uh god emperor children of dune is three i think um but yeah i uh i think the book is hard to read because it's like just a dude writing like all the ideas that are in his head and making a fictional world to do it in. Like um, there's a lot of mystical transportation of thoughts forwards and backwards. Um, Like he's reveling in a lot of like an orientalized, like Western dudes version of what he thinks like mysticism, especially, uh, Muslim mysticism at like the height of the Islamic golden age uh, is like, and that's why there, there's a lot of this weird writing in the book that I think is actually uh, transported by Villeneuve's version to the film through like visuals. Like mm-hmm. the movie is mostly it's true, like slow-mo shots of people and like lens things coming in and out of focus and like sliding shots. And like, I think that's Villeneuve like conveying visually what the book is trying to do in words. Um, It's actually fairly light on dialogue, which I think is probably to its benefit. Um, But yeah, I, uh, I liked it. I'm very familiar with Dune stuff. I like, I've seen the, uh, the uh, David Lynch version like 20 times not because it's a good Dune thing, but because it's very funny. Like Sting rides a worm in it. Like literal Sting <laughs> is like a main character. Wait, he's Sting, Sting, Sting in the, the movie? Sword, the sword from uh, no, the music. Yeah, Sting. <laughs> uh, well, welcome to the Articast. As these boys were trying to sabotage. Yeah, this Tyler and I were getting into it. This is this is actually interesting. Tyler and Sean were cemented into the podcast six weeks ago uh, and they're, they've prepared Hunter Seekers to kill me mm-hmm. and replace me with a podcast about War of the Rings. It should be burning through the wall Finally. as we speak, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's time. all I'll talk about it. I want to hear from Sean and Tyler. Uh, so, so for me, I, I read Dune probably the same time uh, that, that Evan did. I'm not sure. It stopped now, so I think it's fine. So, okay, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking about it, or I'm going to keep going back to where I was. Mm-hmm. So I read Dune probably around the same age, like developmental stage that, that Evan did, um, but I actually really liked it, probably because I was just a, a smarter teenager than he was. Um, but uh, <laughs> But uh, it, was, it was in my sort of like uh, canceled, fan, uh, canceled fantasy and sci-fi author's phase. I was also reading like Ender's Game and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I obviously knew that Frank Herbert was a bit of a, bit of a weirdo <laughs> in some capacity when I was reading it. Um, and that probably colored a bit of how I was reading it. But I do think Dune kind of like had a big impact on of the things that I look for in, in fiction and sci-fi, especially um, since I am now a massive Warhammer 40k fan, which uh, is certainly like a, a pulpy 
uh, sort of uh, almost cartoonish version of the of the Dune universe in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, aesthetically shares a lot of things and, and sort of thematically shares a lot of things with the Dune universe. Um, I, after reading the first Dune, sort of looked up what the story kind of uh, uh, progressed into in the other books and then frowned really heavily at it and then decided not to read the other ones. Um, I, I think I probably am going to get around someday to reading uh, the, the next couple of books as, as Tristan did, but there be madness uh, from what I understand. <laughs> once you get past like uh, the first couple, it's, 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 it's tough. Isn't there a scene where a woman watches one of the clones of Duncan Idaho climb a cliff and then she has an orgasm because she's so turned on by like Duncan Idaho climbing the cliff and how cool it is. See, that's the kind of thing that is only human. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it is Jason Momoa, I mean, can't blame her. Understand, uh, but uh, but that's the kind of thing that that you know, I'm not necessarily uh, looking looking for in my uh, sci-fi necessarily. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed the first Dune. Um, I tried to give a copy of it to my mom uh, because, uh, as Evan did, she liked Game of Thrones and, and Lord of the Rings and things like that, and she bounced off it completely. So mm. uh, that made me feel. Uh, uh, a little silly there, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, the film. I haven't seen the other adaptation, the David Lynch one, um, and I've I've read a lot about uh, Yodorovsky's Dune and seen some of his other films, but have not actually seen that documentary. So really, this is my first uh, Dune filmic experience, and I have to say, it really surpassed my expectations. Well, I suppose I will go, and I will be probably the quickest because... Because I am, as you mentioned, one of the bad boys of podcasting and specifically socialism. Number one, I haven't read Dune. Number two, I don't have a cat. Number three, I only have seen the first season of TNG and that's all I'm going to ever watch. That's so messed up. Respect, brother. Respect. It's so fucked up that you only watched the worst (laughs) season of that show and then you were like, oh, I've got what I needed out of this. And I'll never watch Star Trek ever again. And also, (laughs) Dune as a movie, I was excited about purely because I love Denis. Mm -hmm. And I like sci-fi stuff, don't get me wrong. I'm also a big Warhammer head along with Sean. Um, And was excited just based on the premise of a sci-fi uh, universe that a lot of people have a lot of respect for and a director that I really, really like. So that's all I needed to be excited. And yeah, it, it delivered like without having any baggage going into it. I in thoroughly enjoyed it to the point where, you know, without saying anything to give away identities, I did get a friend of mine who is, you know, works in the film industry to, to get me a nice little effectively a, an, what do you call like an IRL cameo or just something from Denis? Um, <laughs> a nice cool. message? A, a message, nice perhaps? Message, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a message from the deep, which I learned the, the dreams deep. are. A message from the deep to me saying congratulations on my uh, my daughters that were born. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of his and I'm a, I love the movie. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I've seen it, you know, probably four times, I think. And each time... And I'm maybe this is controversial, seeing as Evan, you said you've seen Avatar twice, the movie called Avatar twice. Um, I did not enjoy Avatar twice, and in comparison to Dune, which they're similar lengths, I think. Well, I think Avatar is like 45 minutes longer, but Dune to me does not feel long, even no. though it is very light on dialogue and there's a lot of slow mo shots. 
it feels very um, compelling and I never wanted to stop watching it. Whereas Avatar, I just kept thinking, could we have cut this? Could we have cut this? Could we have cut this? Anyway, that may be controversial. I don't know. But that's my view. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it and it earned its length, in my opinion. I respect your opinion, Tyler, but I am, of course, a holy warrior for James Cameron and the mm. Avatar franchise. Mm. Um, like uh, Lynn, of course, my mm-hmm. my life partner, my other half in tears throughout the entire film because we were watching it. It's like we're Jake, Sully and Natiri. This because is our had, family. They had to go to the bathroom so badly that uh, they they were yeah. wondering, Ooh, I when can I piss. go? When can Lynn, I go? Lynn I was go like, oh, my Lynn was uh, crying because uh, they were scared because it was like <laughs> all these people are blue. Yeah, what the <laughs> fuck is going on, Evan? I'm just my, like, my 3D glasses movie. are broken. My 3D glasses are broken. Everyone's blue. I was <laughs> stop talking. Um, no, it's funny. Um, Lynn is such a rider for Avatar. There was like some guy who was just tech, like talking during like the opening seconds of the film and Lynn just like stood up turned around and be like will you shut the fuck up and like <laughs> the entire theater was silent I was like this is a very pleasant experience to watch Avatar the way of water um but to end this can be a long episode so I'm going to try to organize my thoughts a little bit to, re- to respond to your Star Trek point and this is about science fiction generally Tristan I know you're a big Star Trek guy I know a lot of people listening to this show might be Star Trek heads um I could never do it I've tried several times it has not taken I have watched I've watched uh, maybe 10 episodes of The Next Generation. I literally just looked at lists online. And it's like, here are the good episodes of The Next Generation. And I was like, OK, I'll watch the one where he becomes a Borg and a couple other ones. You and free, and you, I both of you. Are yeah, fucking here, here's freaks. the thing. Here's yeah. the thing, Evan. I and you know what, tell I, you. And I laid my terrible thing to do. I laid my sword Evan's down. And I said, better. that's good enough. I said, that's good enough. And See, the, the thing I think that, the only it, one I might watch throughout the whole thing is deep space nine i'm like okay, that fair. one seems yeah. interesting Evan, to me Evan, the thing Evan that you have like to know is i've got a i've got a list of one episode you need to see the one truly the last one Star when Trek it episode. finally ends it is so the episode where they go to a very problematic kind of african inspired planet and they have there's like a duel between the one star trash lady yeah. and uh one of the local people on the planet and they're on like some sort of it looks like kind of a game show set like kind of a pyramid and they have a duel with poison weapons on there. That's the only good episode that, or that's the, like the number one episode you need to see to understand Star Trek. And outside no, of that, I think it's the wonder what number episode one episode you need to see Evan, is the deep space nine episode where uh, one of the Ferengi guys starts a union and organizes the ship and there's a lot of marxist discussion with people in full prosthetic face uh like makeup it's very good it's awesome the things that like the avenues people had to be a nerd in like the 90s where it's like my thing is because now you just become deeply mentally ill and tweet every thought you've ever had on Twitter and then mm-hmm. you become canceled and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then you're like, I'm in the Star Trek writer's room. I'm going to create. <laughs> I It's finally my turn up to bat <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. And on this episode. I get I'm going to have space plot. Trotsky get assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's really important. Um, I would like to speak for a little bit. Um with your permission um sort of okay so we we talked about the lynch one there's not much we can get into there i haven't seen it. i can't speak authoritatively on it. it i did watch the yodorowsky dune documentary a beautiful vision of a film alejandro yodorowsky is a filmmaker i respect quite a bit uh love holy mountain 
that's a, that's a that's a that's a film um and i feel like there's some like popular push not popular because it's like film twitter so it's like you know 60 people talking to each other um but some people are like i don't like the villeneuve uh dune because it, it it's not yodorowsky's dune and I, something i was struck by rewatching dune this time was just like the scope of it and it's just yes. like it's visual mastery and like the, the thing that i noticed about yeah. it i mean especially this time and the thing that i think villeneuve is very talented at and I'll, I'll let you continue, but I have to jut this point in now. You got to say it. His ability to show scale is like totally unparalleled. Like all the yeah. scenes of the spaceships arriving with the, oh, the like worm uh, formations thing. of yeah. people and or the worm, like any shot where there is a juxtaposition of, of scale is done so well that you're almost Perfect. like, why do other movies not do this? Why can't they do this? I I 100% agree, and I think the thing that powers Denis' filmmaking in this film is something that I look for in filmmakers that I love. Like, shout out to Matt Reeves, uh, Planet of the Apes man, um, Batman man. Um, he, when he was talking about making that film, he was talking about how driven by point of view he was and how like the, fil- the film will get your emotional investment because of perspective and putting the audience in the shoes of someone like Batman or Catwoman. This film, I think has a sense of perspective that so many like films of a similar caliber, let's say for instance, Marvel or star Wars. Um, it's, it's on the same budget level. Um, but what makes it so immersive is like the way it's shot i mean greg frazier's the cinematographer on this he also shot batman he shot zero dark 30 um like the camera is where a real camera would be for a lot of visual effects shots either like on an aircraft on its wing or on a cliff overseeing things it's not like oh look at all of these uh particle effects and laser beams that i made um the visual effects houses work on until they died like it we're we're seeing it from you know the perspective that we're supposed to and like a, a sheet a, little, a shot that i was thinking about was when the harkonnens come back to arrakis and they're like bombing the shit out of the city like you see it from the perspective of like josh brolin and you just see this like gaping maw in the sky when all of these ships are coming out of it it's like that's chilling i hate that um and like the film has this like sensibility around color that I absolutely love where um, you you get like the, the blues and greens and like steel grays of Caladan. And then of course, like the oranges and the browns of Arrakis. Um, and then when you get like the contrast, like having a massive battle scene happen at night and then everything is lit with like these oranges and reds from the fire. So good. Th- that frame is singing. So I, I really like that. I want to I want to jump on that, uh, Evan, and, and build on that. Where I think that a part of, and I, I guess I have two things to say. One is that I I think that part of why the film succeeds in being so clear uh, from being a very uh, uh, you know ambitious adaptation of a very uh, I would say obtuse uh, uh, original source book um, is that uh, it, it develops this visual language that's very strong and very consistent that allows the film to be more readable. 
where yes. the different sort of uh, uh, characters and factions at play are given their own very distinct um, costumes. They're given their distinct color palettes. They're given distinct hairdos, um, even like accents, hairdos, things like that. Um, that allows you to very uh, immediately both like read their sort of character, like in a sort of like fundamental sense, and also just in a very basic narrative sense, tell who they are. Yeah. And I think that and th this is going, not going to be the first time I bring up this comparison, because I think it's actually a very important comparison, is that I, I, this is one of many ways that I think that this film is, and there's, not a, it's a, that's, there's a reason why we were talking about Lord of the Rings, is because this <laughs> film is a lot like Lord of the Rings, in that it is in extremely competent and well done and beautiful, even at times, adaptation of a very legendarily difficult to adapt yeah. piece of literature and and i think that both peter jackson and uh Denis, our boy uh succeeded in in a task that many thought was basically impossible in bringing these two films uh to life like out of their respective source material and i think a big part of that was understanding how to make visibly legible um what was happening in these books in a way that carried through the sort of like emotion that and and, and the sort of stakes that are happening in those books and uh, I, I guess the second thing that I wanted to say, which ties into that comparison, um, because I really don't think we've seen something like Dune since the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, and hopefully if, if the rest of the Dune series manages to come to fruition in a similar way, uh, it will you know, be very similar in terms of its impact and, and its, its uh, sort of ability to stick the landing there. But I think that what really makes them stand apart from things like Marvel, things like the recent Star Wars, is both pre-production, there's a lot of pre-production, a lot of costumes, a lot of sets, a lot of people doing a lot of concept art, a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work on this. Mm -hmm. And two, it, like you can really get the sense that everyone, from all the actors, the, the uh, composer, the uh, people just even making the costumes, doing the FX, really cared about this project and really wanted it to succeed yeah. in a way that wasn't just, you know, going through the motions and doing the, like, Kevin Feige special. Yeah. This was, like, people were really bought into this, and they really wanted to succeed. And I think a good good example of that is how uh, some of the shots of uh, uh, Jace Momoa's character, Duncan Idaho, kind of chilling with the Fremen, were a result of him just going into the desert with his friends in their like uh, Fremen costumes and just filming some stuff and right. just bringing it back to Denis and say, we were just really feeling it. Uh, we got some yeah, footage yeah, of us yeah. chilling in That's the desert. So yeah. You can use it if you want. He was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so like yeah. everyone really bought into it in a really like intense degree. Yeah. And I don't think you get that with a lot of films that are like genre films, essentially. No, no. Uh, and, and that lends it this like really intense, like, uh, uh, sort of like authenticity and like gravitas that you just, again, you really don't the, see. A lot the of the thing that I enjoy, and, and I'm going to draw a parallel to a lot of the things that I believe Sean and I also both like about the Warhammer uh, universe, specifically the 40 K universe, um, which is, I'm sure this term didn't originate in Warhammer, but, but grim dark is a, is a term of kind of, a variety of things from no, it, it did originate in Warhammer because okay. it's the grim dark future. It is oh yeah, that, yeah, it is the grim dark future. Yeah. But it, it that that communicates a lot, like in terms of the visual style, the setting, the attitude, the storytelling, etc. And I think this movie 
managed to manages to incorporate that style in a way on film that I don't think I've seen done this successfully, where it's a very minimal palette. A lot of things are very dark, like a lot of scenes that are at night, though, all the Harkonnen stuff is basically just black. A lot of black goo as well. Um, love which we goo. love. We love goo. You need goo. Movie. Yeah, we need the goo. We need the goo. Um, and does so in a way that I believe, like that sense of very clear visual style is something. Also, to add on to what Sean was saying, that so many other modern genre movies lack, and that I think a lot of the classic genre movies, even even um, you know, '80s, '90s kind of slasher movies or or B movie sci-fi stuff have is it's simple and very clear and cohesive, and that's so much more powerful than I guess a very competently done um, digital throw-up that like so many movies have. That there's no consistent style; everything is just way overdone, overproduced too many lights, too many gizmos, too many spinning things. Like even if you look to something as, you know, interesting as just the ship design in this movie, like my five-year-old daughter could draw these spaceships and they'd look just as good. They're just kind of big blocks or big tubes. But the way that they uh, pull that into the universe, they don't feel like, oh, we had to rush this design out or something. They feel so in line with the world and that helps it makes a visual story storytelling so much easier. I think when you've got such a cohesive and simple, even, you know, I love the scene where they do the, um, and I can't remember the name of the city, the main dune city, the main Arrakis. Arakeen. Arakeen. When they do the kind of pan over shot of it. And you would see, like, you could think of a lesser movie and there'd be like all these kind of like high rises and, and things, um, driving around and trying to create this illusion of like, life and a teeming city and it's it's just all the buildings are like flat one color there's some shadows obviously from the sun but there's no um no differentiation in in kind of textures and color palettes and that's so much more interesting and cool than you know the opposite so i i just think that this kind of visual storytelling and it could just it's totally a subjective thing but this to me is like how you do good sci-fi and good world building is like this cohesive and simple aesthetic i love it yeah and i think specifically how you do good visual storytelling uh like i think this is uh the like or example like one of the best examples you can pull of like how to tell story visually and mm-hmm. I think like getting back to Sean's discussion about like adaptation, like how Lord of the Rings, um, I also think is a really good ad- adaptation. I think what's similar between Dune and uh, the Jackson Lord of the Rings movies are they both um, did the bare, uh, told the story in the bare minimum way they needed to for it to yes. be that thing, but then pulled out the things they were interested in about it. Right. And focus mm-hmm. specifically on that thing. For Peter Jackson, it was the hero's story. It was the narrative of Lord of the Rings. There's so much more in the book of Lord of the Rings than that through line hero yeah. story. There's things about language and culture, and there's things about uh, how people change over time. There's a lot of really interesting religious allegory and philosophy in the Lord of the Rings books, but that's all been thrown out in the movies because Peter Jackson cares about the hero's story, focuses on it. And tells that story in a way that you can do in three, two and a half hour movies, right? I think Denny Villeneuve does the same thing. He throws out most of the content of the Dune book and in fact invents a lot of scenes that 
tell the plot of the Dune book just through visual storytelling. So like there's way more in the Dune book on Caladan at the beginning of the story, but we don't need it because the visual storytelling of the Imperial ship coming down and being so imposing, the storytelling of like how the Bene Gesserit witches are cast in lighting and um, yeah. the dynamic on screen between Paul and his mother and the distance between them in those early scenes, that all conveys visually what is hundreds of pages in the book. Yeah. By just seeing it, you you get a sense of what that story is without it having to be told to you. And it's clear that's what Denny loves and that's what Denny wanted to do. And that's why it ended up being good, I think. Like, And also Denny pulled out what he wanted to. Like when it comes to the stuff, the story that he focuses on, like there's way more in the books about ecology, about uh, anthropological history and how cultures merge and change over time. There's very little of that in this movie. There's a lot more about like mystical visual storytelling um, about that, like uh, the hint of the hero's dirty stuff as well, that I think Denny cared about that stuff more. That's what he got out of the book. So that's what we see on screen. Is there, is there any better credit um, rather than harm it? Because, is there any better visual storytelling than the voice? Oh, when, yeah, my God. When they use so the, good. Like you couldn't do like a magic or power or whatever, any better than that on a film. It's, it's so unnerving. Like I remember being in the theater um, and when Timmy Shalitz himself uh, used the voice for the first time and we get him opening his mouth and talking, but we don't hear it yet. And then this like terrifying amalgamation of voices Mm -hmm. reaching our ears. And then like, if you parse through it, it's like, you know his ancestors it's like the right. it's a uh, charlotte rampling who leads the bene Gesserit, and it's like oh it's so evocative and i think tristan to to speak to your point which i really appreciate like film is just a completely different medium with significantly different storytelling priorities than mm-hmm. a novel um and i think that in the act of adaptation like so many people just look at something and they're like okay i'm telling the story um, and I need to, you know, hi- have these ca- scenes or these character moments. But like, this one thing that I really love about Denis, he's one of our guys. Um, and one thing that really stood out to me during the production is he said that his main driving force is going back to the feeling that he had as a child reading Dune. And that sense of awe and wonder mm-hmm. is there, which I think you need for Dune. But then there is this very adult look at the text where it's it's about fanaticism. It's about fascism. It's about imperialism. Um, and there are, it's a world without heroes in a great sense, like, you know, to their own morality, the Atreides are good. Mm-hmm. And then if you just look at it, oh, it's people in gray uniforms <laughs> shouting with swords coming to take <laughs> over a planet and like, OK, awesome. Is that great um, um, scene with um Wait, who's the dad Atreides? What's his name? Duke Leto Atreides. Duke Leto. Oscar Isaac like, himself. They, they they build him up in a way where he's such a kind of likable character and he's this powerful guy, but hey, he throws in a couple, you know, nice little shoulder rubs to his son and things like that. And you're like, oh, he's a nice guy. And then there's that part where um, he meets the um, Fremen guy there and, and they're having that first meeting. And he's like, this is my fiefdom. And you're like, whoa. They they do a good job, I think, with his character of like he 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 is a nice guy comparatively, I guess, within the world. But then also bought he's into still it. like 
I'm a king yeah. and this is my fiefdom, uh, which, which I appreciate that they throw those little tweaks into the character. So no one's super one dimensional, good guy. I, I like that. And then, and again, it's like one little line and I think it's even missable, but for me, that's enough to be like, okay, yeah. Like he has a different set of morality that isn't totally up to 2022 I wanna, standards. I want to bring another uh, line of connection to uh, Lord of the Rings, which is, I think the, the voice is actually the, the thing I'd like to compare that to is the way the magic is depicted in Lord of the Rings, where instead of yeah. it just being yes. like flashy lasers and explosions, what, what that makes me think of is, is the wizard duel between Gandalf and Solomon, yeah. where it's this very, phys- like, the magic is depicted as this very, like, invisible, yeah. like, physical thing mm-hmm. in a way that's like, extremely non-traditional for how magic is depicted. Like, think of, like, a Harry Potter magic where they're just yeah, blasting yeah. lights out of a wand and, like, fireworks and stuff like that. Or since said this very, like... The, the the sort of impact of the magic actually comes from the way that that scene is edited and cut. Like the, the yeah. way that you see um, like the, the hard cuts between Saruman and Gandalf where they're like flying across the room, um, the sort of like intensity of the actors and like the way that they behave, the like the wounds that appear on their face out of nowhere. It comes from the actual f- like using the tools of filmmaking to make it like, you know, seem like intense and supernatural. And again, I think that the way that the voice is done is also, you know, using the tools of filmmaking, this like asynchronous sound uh, to uh, make something that feels very unnatural and, and, and uh, uh, sort of uh, deeply unnerving uh, when it could have just been, you know, a, a very kind of almost lame thing if it was done yeah. almost any other way, I think. With lasers. But, yeah, <laughs> he shoots lasers, lasers out of his out mouth. Of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and one yeah. of the most effective parts of that is the editing that they do where it, where after he kind of speaks and you don't hear the voice, it cuts to the perspective of the other person and time cuts. So like they don't, oh. it, it's very visually clear that they don't, they weren't kind of mentally present when whatever they were being spoken to do happened. So good. And that's so effective. And, yeah. And I think I will speak one thing in the voice and then I want to switch gears a little bit. Oh no, don't use the My, voice on us. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. so um i love when uh charlotte ramping charlotte rampling revered mother mahayam or whatever shows up to caladan Mommy. um and she's talking to paul using the voice mm-hmm. and commands him to come and then like on the screen we see whoa, like, whoa, i don't remember that scene <laughs> the using the <laughs> using the voice i command um, you to come j-o-i um Try not to come, young Paul Atreides. <laughs> so um, you see him like going to her, and it's like that's like the mental projection that he experiences when you know someone else uses the voice on him. And then it's mm-hmm. like, oh, is he going or not? And then it cuts back, and it's like, no. But he's like resisting he's it. There, so. yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to go back to t- talk about the opening of the film because I think it's it's great and it sets the table for a lot of what this film is about. Um, and I first of all, we get Chani, who is not a character who is present in like action in the film, but is someone who we see in visions, someone who Paul is destined to reach um, but also potentially a dangerous character because Paul is someone who exists in many different futures. We see Chani killing him. We mm-hmm. see Chani uh, loving him. What's going to happen? Um, 
And I love, well, the, the spice mining scene at the beginning where the Harkonnens are yes. going out at night so uh, when they're being ambushed by the Fremen with the cool laser guns, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and then we get this like this setting of the table of like the history and the political economy and the fact that this is going to be a movie about oppression and mm-hmm. colonial conquest. Um when Chani is talking about, you know, why did the emperor choose this path and who will our new oppressors be? Yeah. And then we get to cut to Paul. <laughs> so it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. oh, it, th- I thought this Paul character was just a, a young boy going on adventure. But no, it seems he's uh, he's, uh, you know, the figure of doomed prophecy and also just like the the raw power of empire. Like um, and I like the. The, I, I guess we can talk about, you know, colonialism within the context of this film and also within the work of Dune itself. But like, I think within the film, it's fascinating because there's there's this differentiation between the Harkonnens and the Atreides, where the Harkonnens... One is bald, uh, one has hair. Well, the, the Harkonnens are problematic white people mm-hmm. and the Atreides are Spanish. So yes. there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's differentiation. I've never done anything wrong. No, they're very good people. Uh, they're loyal. They're honest. Um, and I, of course, the visual storytelling is there differentiating these two. I mean, Duke Leto Atreides, like, you know, a very heroic name. Um, Duke Leo, Duke Lion. Who's, who's to say? Um, but, um, you know, they're they're heroic people um, who also happen to be wearing Nazi uniforms, which, you know, let's not think about too <laughs> they hard. They do have bagpipes, um, though, which is great. The bagpipes go hard. They go um, And uh, the 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 Harkonnens are I, I and this is a thing about the movie that I love. Um it speaks for itself, right? When we were talking about this visually, um, but like we don't get into why Gatie Prime is how it is, right. why the Harkonnens are pallid white, but it's all there in well, the why, frame. Why every time you see them, they have a new type of freak that they're looking at. <laughs> yeah. the, the freak is the I most important the part of the film. They've got so many good freaks. I, the thing that, I especially love- the, the kind of spider freak that I realized for the first time watching is that all the feet are hands. Oh, yeah. That, that's freak shit. That's total. Um, before we get too far away from talking about the intro, uh, you guys know what it's uh, another uh, movie that has a uh, expo- expository voiceover at the beginning by a mysterious female character. That's Avatar twice. Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Evan's got Avatar. It. The first two Avatar films narrated by Jake Sully. Okay, you're not going right. to trap me in this. Right. Trap me here <laughs> in my house. I, I think there's actually. I, I think a lot of films would be maybe too embarrassed to to start with like a bit of exposition like that. But it's actually good. It oh, no, it's good. Situate like the the, the audience. The, the funny thing is, like ex- exposition in film is not bad in and of itself. It's bad mm-hmm. when it is. Um, a filmmaker saying, oh, fuck, we did not tell our story very well. We have to like paper over this poorly made movie with someone doing an exposition dump so people can understand it. This is very much like a scene setting. Like you would get in kind of a, 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 um, a Shakespeare play or something where it's like, now the stage is set. Here's our story. Like that, that is very classy and well done. Like you, you it yeah. does not mean it, it's a bad thing. And we just totally. have two great examples of it being done well. Or maybe I three if you include Captain Sullenberger in, uh, doing his voiceover <laughs> for the movie Sully. I, Sully is a classic film that <laughs> we, I will need to cover on this program <laughs> at some point. Um, but yeah, I, I think the opening is great. I mean, in terms of like 
the the visual magnitude of the film, the scale it's working at, getting you adjusted to that. Um, and like you were saying, Tyler, it, it is Shakespearean and this in it, it is sort of a dramatis personae or whatever. Like, here are the players, like the Harkonnens have been mining here for mm-hmm. 80 years. They're now richer than the Emperor himself. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're leaving. That's weird. What does the Emperor mm. want? Eh. And it's it, it asks all these questions that will unfold in this non-linear way throughout the film. Um and I I like I I, I really appreciate how this film deals with colonialism and sort of the the, the it, it's it, it's one of the parts of dune that i think is one of the most interesting and maybe like least like seriously grappled with because i think it's very easy to say like uh the original text of dune is orientalist and therefore mm. it will not tell us anything of use and it's like yes it is orientalist it's frank herbert talking about oh islam is strange and mystical i'm going to write a book that incorporates some of these elements and it's also it, it it's not a critique of orientalism but it's a critique of the sort of like political economy that's driven mm. europe to conquer the world mm-hmm. um and even within spice. yeah i know oh, i got, gotta get that spice oh I, well we're we're spice in our world i, just I don't wish know in the movie they would call it salt and pepper and it would be much simpler paprika yeah <laughs> paprika yeah, I, powers our ships picking up on that evan so like i think like the original book is oriental orientalist because it was written in the 60s by a white guy from like the midwest so like of course it is but i'm i don't say that to say like that it's ba- bad like it is orientalist in that it uh deals with common orientalist tropes and a mm-hmm. often a a level like you get the impression that frank has a surface level understanding of a lot of the religious and cultural s- subjects that he talks about especially from the East, but it's actually very sympathetic. Like I would compare it to something like, um, like the only, like, like the example that's coming to mind is Rousseau, who's like actually still pretty bad in his politics, obviously, but like, there's like this element of nobility, like it's intended to be a screed against the imperialist colonial powers of Mm -hmm. Europe. And it's doing it in a way that doesn't have a full understanding of these cultures. But mm. it's actually like, generally speaking, I think it's politics when it comes to colonialism or favorable. Yeah. And yeah. I'll say like, too, like in terms of um, like Paul in the first movie and in the first half of the book, too, is portrayed as a point of view character and more favorably. But the story of Dune is about learning that he's actually very evil um, actually mega Hitler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, Oops, uh, all especially Hitler. in the later books. Uh, I won't spoil anything like clear, but like sure. it's it's already hinted at. And you know that in the scene when he's like think seeing the holy war, yeah, he calls it yeah, a holy yeah. war, called a yeah. jihad in the book. But like you like you know he's going to become evil. He knows he's gonna become evil and he's dreading it happening. Like I think that we see this. So like in the book, the concept like of of a rulership and the way that rulers act is dissected a lot. Like the Harkonnens rule through fear and hate and the ideas of the Atreides like rule through love and loyalty. But the message that Frank gets across, I think pretty effectively is that both are actually equally evil ruling mm-hmm. from a place of love and loyalty um, actually causes your like retainers and the people you lead to become fanatical 
in their in the faith that they put into you and mm-hmm. he's very skeptical about like um elites religious or political having power over people and whether or not they're uh, whether or not they we can say that they have virtues or vices and how they rule like the fact that they rule over you is the problem like very much the problem in the books right. especially <clears throat> later on and like i think that's an interesting discussion that there isn't like a good way to be a ruler of a planet right like and i think they uh, accomplish so, yeah. that like yeah. I, I think they that point comes across quite clearly and I, I you know without the complete backing of the full book behind me like you know having enough knowledge to be able to pretend to understand these things a little bit i thought that point was well made and i would have a hard time seeing anyone see that movie and talking to them about it and them not arriving at eff- effectively a similar conclusion right um and yeah i i, I I'm someone who values intention quite a bit when it comes to these types of things, especially uh, Mm -hmm. creation of art. And and I don't think from what I understand and and what I uh, have heard in this discussion and and talking to other people who are big Dune fans, certainly don't think his um, intention was to like uh, make something that was, um, you know, racist or simplistic to a culture. I think he probably was someone who was very interested in and like those cultures a lot and and maybe in a ham-fisted way tried to fit them into this tale about imperialism that he wanted to tell um so you know what maybe maybe that's not the best thing to say but i i give people a lot of breaks for that type of stuff yeah frank frankie had a problem it wasn't with uh you know the fascination with the bedouin people Mm. it's with his his, uh, depiction of gay people But oh really? That uh, a, yeah, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, Frank. Uh, uh, Frank was not a big fan of uh, mm. of, of the gay lifestyles, uh, specifically his uh, gay son who he uh, disowned. Oh, no. Wait, didn't um, his son but, uh, write books or something? That was his other son. Oh, that's um, but uh, but yeah, uh, Denis thankfully uh, takes out all of the Harkonnen boy touching scenes oh which but... i think is <laughs> pretty actually tasteful of him yeah that seems uh, like a because good i don't scene. think it it really adds hard to film to those the... types of scenes i would say yeah i, I think uh, i think you you get the sense that the harkonnens are bad guys without without that yeah <laughs> no i i'm gonna i'm gonna you know uh stand against that being like i th- i think it would be so important in this post epstein <laughs> era to really hammer home why the harkonnens are so evil i can't quite understand it right mm-hmm. um, i can't get like, it they don't have enough freaks yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get it by Dave Batista going like, how dare they take what is ours? <laughs> well, I, I was the thing, like, the thing about hmm. the Harkonnens that is obvious and why we know they're bad people is because they're bald. That's right. That's it's, clear. It's and actually, that's the way you can know that someone is evil. Instantly. If they don't have hair and if not only if they don't have hair, their entire culture doesn't have hair. <laughs> is that a choice? <laughs> is that in the lore? Why are they all fucking bald? Do they decide to shave their heads out of respect to the Baron or are they well, just genetically I, bald? So, yes, yeah, so he doesn't feel bad about not being bald. <laughs> yeah. Got no clue about the baldness, but obviously, I I love Giddy Prime, and I, I love <laughs> Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron, yeah. and like having this world that's like very clearly like, oh, here's the greenhouse effect to its fullest yeah. extent. They live under you know dark skies all the time. And, they receive and no talk sunlight. About amazing visual storytelling. The his little flotation suit. Oh, so, and just a little so like good. red lights going beep, beep 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 up his back, and then he gets to float up. Terrific. Like, What's more terrifying than that? The floating big guy. 
Also, the way that uh, I mean, a lot of the tech in the movie, the way that the shields are depicted, yeah, amazing. very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it helps them make more legible what they're actually doing. Yeah, and the, the yeah, because it's like red is pierced. dead, blue is oh, goo. And oh, the and laser gun. I'll just mention while we're talking about it, like the lasers. Yeah, the way yeah. it sort of like fills the air, and you see the dust around the laser, yeah, yeah. And like. The coolest version of a laser in anything yes. is in this movie. Mm-hmm. They did good lasers. That's true. I do. Actually, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I do want to speak to one more element of uh, of the colonialism uh, that the film speak on I that. think is very uh, excellently unpacking. Um, I love um, Paul's first sort of like you get you get this mediated sense of what Arrakis will be like throughout a lot of the opening of the film, and Paul is uh, checking out this like hollow projector. Like, you know, some sort of like, you know, scholar is talking about uh, Arrakis and uh, they say little else is known of the Fremen, except they are dangerous and unreliable, (laughs) Um, which is like excellent perfect perfect right what these people you know believe the world is like, right? Because the Fremen are and this is this is I mean, obviously, there's massive parallels to our world. We live in Canada, which is like a resource extractive empire Mm -hmm. where indigenous peoples or the people who happen to live by a project that you're working on are either enemies who need to be displaced or potential partners in success which is the atreides model of we're Mm -hmm. going to build an alliance with the fremen while we rob their planet um and stay there forever (laughs) like and stilgar sees this like that's one of my favorite moments in the film javier bardem as stilgar and this is just a given but the cast of this film is incredible that's what i was was about to say is let's let's just take like a like a minute to talk about the cast Yeah. yeah god damn and so it, it's it's such a it's such an expert move mm-hmm. again on Denise's part to have this like incredible cast and what is the film are there any extraneous scenes no. of you know yeah. character moments between these people no they all have perfect character moments and again yeah. it's taking from the text Even what you need main from characters it. have like 30 lines in the whole movie like there, yeah. there's, you know what i mean like there's no he, obviously the, the role of paul and um jessica right is the mom's name yeah um what's that actress rebecca ferguson who's one of my favorite actresses okay let's get your wolf whistles out now fellas while we do the show but she's incredible i mean i've been a fan of hers since she was in uh the later mission impossible films uh oscar isaac playing space dad josh brolin playing one of your space warriors stellan skarsgård is the baron um batista batista as the greatest kills it Momoa, Momoa is so it, good. Yeah. Have Batista um, and Momoa been in the same movie before? Because it feels like they are like they're due for like a movie where they face off against each other. I'm or have sure. they ever shown up in the same movie before in the same frame? Or have because they ever been in the same? If room. they're not the same person, <laughs> the same guy. <laughs> That's it. Looks so alike. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, of course, Zendaya appears uh, throughout the film a little bit. Mostly David Dasmalian uh, is one of my favorite freaks when he shows up in a movie. There's, he was oh, the guy in that he was uh, the guy in Dark Knight who's like yeah, tackling yeah, to himself yeah, yeah. after they yeah, shoot yeah, Gordon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, exactly. And uh, you know he's he's wheeling and dealing also for the Harkonnens. Like horror movie, kind mm-hmm. of in that realm. Like he presented the Chainsaw Awards, I believe, last year or something. Like he's a big he's, nice. He's a, he loves being one of the genre guys, which I I appreciate people like that in the horror community. 
Oh, yeah. You get Charlotte Rampling here as a revered mother Mahayam uh, for a bit. She's fantastic. And I remember there was this production thing where they were going to have um, her scene with the Gom Jabbar test, which, of course, again, brilliantly realized um, she was going to have her face uncovered. And then I for some reason, I don't know. They were like, what if we what if we tried this with a veil? Excellent choice. Oh, yeah. Um, Makes her way scarier. And I still know her like it's still clear. Yeah. You know, like you don't lose anything. You you gain so much more by having that veil, I think. Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. And two other performances that I really want to highlight because I think they add so much to the, the film. Sharon Duncan Brewster is Liette Kynes, uh, who is Great. now a woman in this story, which I, I thought was a very choice. nice touch. Yeah. Wait, who's that? Um, uh, uh, the ecologist. The, uh, yeah, the yeah. ecologist. Yeah. Yeah, who, who uh, cannot speak or say anything for the emperor has commanded it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and uh, let's see. Oh, my God. I had it right here. Yeah. And Stephen McKenley Henderson as uh, Thufir Hawat, uh, who gives my favorite eye roll in cinema history. <laughs> yeah. uh, when it's just like, how how much would it cost for the Imperium to come uh, here? If if only, this is when I look on my phone and I have to do the calculator to add like 15 to like 23. And it's like, <laughs> oh, it appears that it's this, my Lord. Excellent. Um, excellent. Uh, shit. Speaking of that, just because I, I thought of this. There's two things I want to say. One, another thing, and again, I don't know if this is in the book. If it is, it's it's a great device in the book, but in the movie, it's very effective. The smart guys, they have the black lip. The doctors, they have the triangle. Yeah. Like, that is so perfect. And, like, you, no one needs to describe that to you. It's just you see him with the black lip, and then you see the Harkonnen guy with the black lip, and you're like, ah, these are the smart guys. And then you see the doctor with the black triangle, and you're like, well, that guy had the black lip. That meant something. The black triangle, obviously, he's the... He's the Reiki healer. That's what he is. That's his job. Yeah, and no one, no one feels compelled to like be like, Paul. Remember, uh, the <laughs> yeah. black lip thing means he's a mentat, which means he's skilled in doing uh, mathematical yeah. equations yeah. that normally computers would do. But unfortunately, <laughs> because of the Butlerian jihad, yeah. there are no computers anymore. Yeah. Okay, I want to speak uh, on one thing. I, I want to speak on yeah. one thing, which is, I think it's it's hard to say. There's many great scenes, but maybe my favorite scene in the movie is the ceremonial scene when um i want to say caliban so badly sean but caladan <laughs> um for all the dark angels up there yeah. but um the planet the, caliban yeah when the, um, <laughs> <laughs> this is rocky or rambo three um you know this film is dedicated to the brave fremen warrior yes, supposing right. uh emperor shadam the fourth but when the delegation arrives um just the visual of all the different groups of people. And then as he's kind of reading, like who's there and they kind of cut to them, you get so much in that scene. And then also the, how the Atreides people kind of set up, how they're dressed, how they chant Atreides, like nincompoops and like all this kind of stuff. Like you get so much in that scene about world building that to me, that single scene is like, should be required for every genre film person to watch and be like, mm-hmm. this is how you build a world like this. You don't when need all the guys. Yeah. Oh yeah. When all the guys came out of the ship, I was yeah. like, this is going to be a good ass movie. Yes. Like it yes. was like, it, it, that was really like what, what like it was like, yeah. made me like, like relax almost. And be like, yeah. This is going to be great sure. because it was like, that is, it's so killer to do that and not feel like mm-hmm. you have to explain all of yeah. it. And they all look so kind of fucked up. Yeah, and again, to your point, not not Paul leaning over to the, the Mentech guy and being like, 
Wait, who are the guys with the gassy mask? <laughs> like, hey, yeah, to your point, shot yeah. about like conveying. Uh, sorry, Tyler, to conveying uh, the like visual storytelling in terms of like getting the exposition out. Like them all coming out of the ship, you could have a ten minute scene where you talked about well the important like. The important groups are the Spacing Guild, of course, and the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the Ancient Order of Witches, the Bene Gesserit, and the <laughs> Imperial Courtiers. But like, yeah. as they come out, you just see it, like you, yeah. mm-hmm. in one scene, and you know, even though yeah. you don't know the lore names of what those guys are, you see them in one frame, and like, oh yeah, those are the Space Witches guys. Like, mm-hmm. oh, those are the weird Space Helmet guys. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. like, and you know, yeah. and I, and I have two things to say to that because, and this is what I was saying before, and we were talking about the the visual style of the film. Um, It speaks for itself and it's a movie that makes you more, it it cares about your interest Mm -hmm. and it shows you things and it expects you to pay attention Mm -hmm. and to be compelled by the images because it has confidence in it. Like, Oh yeah. Guys with weird spice masks. Who are they? Um, There are these people and it's not to the point where it's alienating. It's not, it, it asks you to be more curious. You hear about the spice. You see the spice at the beginning of the film. You see people the with the spice, spice masks. It, you, spice. you have, even if you have no familiarity with Dune, you have the tools to go like, okay, this is how the universe yeah. works, right? You understand it's the most, it's the most precious what substance it feels in the like universe. feels like is like good art like this, where you have those moments of, you know, and, and I think a lot of the best authors do this too, where, where you're, and John Le Carre, one of my, favorite authors does this a lot where you're reading a book and you have those moments where you're like, am am I stupid? Am I not understanding this? Or is the truth, which is obviously the truth that you are being led down through a story by a master storyteller and that whatever you need to know will be explained in time. And if you don't understand something quite yet, it's not because we have, I've failed to explain it to you yet. It's because either you can infer or as the story progresses, you'll be able to be like, oh, that is connecting to that. And I see how that makes sense. And that is how, like, in my opinion, great stories are told where they don't hold your hand and they don't expect you to understand everything as it's being told out. And in fact, some things they expect you not to understand at first and you will have revelations later in the story. And and that is like another big sign to me of a, a good storyteller that you know, maybe Frank Herbert was this as well, but obviously Denis Villeneuve is is good enough to expect that his audiences will be able to figure this out if it's not, you know, totally explained to you, right? I like while that we're, respect. Well, while we're First talking about good ass scenes, um, uh, for me, the best scene in the film, and, and it's the most Warhammer 40k ass scene in the film, is the Sodicar. Yes, it's it's like you see it. You see the guy chanting doing hand stuff. See all the people being like uh, having the throat slit, blood blood going to the chalices. The guy's getting marked and the guy speaking like, oh, look, and you're like, wow, the Atreides are fucked because they're going to get killed by these evil space marines. Like, that's the best good. Again, uh, in the hands of a lesser storyteller, they have someone who is like, the Sardaukar have fought, you know, 10,000 battles and in each one they have, you know, da, da, da. But you don't need that. You just need to see that scene, hear the throat singing and be like, these guys are going to kill anyone. That's, oh, yeah. you, need, you know. Oh, and and even 
while being so dark that they, they still get to be tonally and visually different from yep. Harkonnens, which is something that I would find very difficult adapting Dune in mm-hmm. any visual sense. And like, you know, Yodorowsky had his way of doing it. David Lynch did his um, the sci-fi miniseries that I have not watched did theirs. Mm-hmm. But like it's difficult to interpret like, OK, what do the Sardaukar look like? Mm-hmm. Like they're this like you know terrifying military they're really powerful who's to say and like what are the what are the touchstones we could use to communicate that and i this is a naming thing so frank herbert gets to take credit for this but i love the name salusa secundus oh, i think about I, it a lot in my that head like a, like, that sounds like a sexual move oh yeah like <laughs> mi- military planet salusa secundus where you go to do throat singing and bathe in blood yeah. like awesome excellent um and like the languages, right? The 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 guys, I'm forgetting their names right now. They they speak in this like very gravelly, strange voice that's like kind of recognizable um as a human language. Um but also it is the language spoken at the very beginning of the film with dreams or messages from the deep. It's the Sardaukar language. Um which is I was it? like it is. Um oh, so damn. I was like fascinated by that and that's a question i still have it's like ooh, why is that i guess i'll find out in dune part two um and and that's another really exciting thing because like well you could read the whole dune book you could figure out what's going to happen next i don't know what to expect from the next film same and yeah. i think that's really compelling because like even in this film and i, I want to talk about the the jamis character for a moment um this character who takes up little space in the film, he's just a Fremen warrior who the Paul, guy Paul needs fights to, at the end. The guy yeah. that Paul fights in the knife fight, um, so he can take his place in you know and be welcomed within right. the Fremen society. The, the friend that shows him the path. The friend who shows him the path. Because I thought what was so brilliant, and this was something I didn't get like when I first saw it in the theaters, and like when I second the second time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is actually really good. Um, like we get to see through Paul's visions, like the same way that Chani could be like this friend or foe. We get to see a time where Jamis lives and teaches Paul about the ways of the desert and they become like friends. And then it adds this tragedy to the fight where Jamis doesn't know this. He's just like, I'm, I'm compelled to kill Paul, but Paul is just like, I have this terrible burden because I've kind of already lived the life where we're buddies. Interpretation of this. Okay, I'm excited to hear your different interpretation because when he gets in contact with the spice, he he's starting to become this mind that will bridge this this mind that will bridge space and time. So it's like he he's been down the road with Jamis. He knows he's seen flashes of it. He's like, oh, wouldn't that be nice? But still got to do this. Sean, what's your take? So Paul said when when the Benjester, it's like you see the things that you see in your dreams. Do they come to pass? He says not exactly. So, he sees things in his dreams, and they do come to pass, but not exactly the way he sees them. Mm. But what he sees in his dream is Jamas being a, like, and he said, like, there's, like, this prophecy. It's like, you will find a friend, and this friend will show you You the path. They'll show you the way of the desert. (laughs) And Jamas, Jamas is, like, seen, like, you know, sitting with him being like, I will show you the ways of the desert. I'll show you the ways of Arrakis. And Jamis does show him the ways of uh-huh. the desert. He does show him the way of Arrakis, which is mm. brutality and combat. So true. I really it, like that. And Jamis is his friend, and he does show him the path, which is that Jamis, through his like belligerence and his actions, 
buys Paul a place within their society and is the first life that Paul takes, mm. ushering him onto the golden path uh, to becoming uh, the Kwisatz Haderach. Like, without Jamis, without that life that he, was, he took, like, uh, he, he wouldn't be able to ascend to the position of, uh, you know, world-killing emperor that he's uh, eventually going to become. Jamis, he sees Jamis in his mind as this friend and this guide, and that literally does come true, but not exactly in the way that he sees in the dream. Jamis does function as this, like, entrance into um, the world of Arrakis for him, this entrance into Fremen society, but just in a very sort of, as you said, kind of a bittersweet way, where, um, I mean, I, I think the contrast between the Jamis you see in the, in the, the visions and the Jamis you see being so belligerent and, and against Paul is like intentional and supposed to be shocking. But I think that the role that he fills ends up being the role that is prophesized to him, which is he is this this uh, figure that allows Paul to enter into yeah. uh, Arakine society. I, I like and that, that. And, and that I didn't connect that, um, but that makes a lot of sense. I like that interpretation a lot. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. And again, that's a life great, for life. that's also a good storytelling thing when something like that, that's meant to be ambiguous can be interpreted different ways and still work. That again, to me is like a very strong storyteller who knows, you know, you could come at this from a few different angles, but each way you come at it is going to work and be valid within the, 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 the universe that we've created. I, I really appreciate that too. Like, you know, mm -hmm. so many of the best movies have, different interpretations that can be read into them and like you know what's what's better than this guys being dudes um <laughs> that, that's, that's i think what it's all about the second like part two is going to be really really interesting because like mm -hmm. just seeing the little bit that we see about how prescience is um depicted in this movie so like the way that uh paul can see the possible futures of his interaction with Jameis. And he mm -hmm. gets uh, he gets like a prediction about the future that is true in like an al uh, allegorical sense. Like it's true that Jameis is his friend and leads him down this path path to become becoming a person of the desert, but just not in the way that we would think of a friend and not in the way that we would think most obviously in leading. Right. That's going to happen a lot more in the second movie, because now that. Paul has like consumed spice. He's been on the planet of Dune for a while. He's starting to come into his like genetic inheritance of this Kwisatz Hadrach, which is like the, the, the genetic creature that the Bene Gesserit, those witches have been trying mm -hmm. to make. And Paul has like, is becoming now that he has that power of prescience. The second movie I think is going to be full of that. And it's going to be really interesting because that's something that Dune had. And as impactful as Dune has been on science fiction, not a lot of other books have investigated and thought about how prescience can work in storytelling a lot and that's going to be really cool and exciting to see visually how it's depicted like the visions that paul has of possible futures how that's depicted visually and in audio um like we got a taste of it in this movie but it's going to happen a lot more in the second one and it's cool to have an opportunity as a director to tell the end of the movie in the first and second or end of the trilogy of movies however many movies get made he has the opportunity to tell the end in this movie and that's weird and cool yeah i uh strangely something another piece uh, of i'll say art maybe that's a lame thing to say but that lately that does a pretty good job at this actually is god of war ragnarok they they talk a lot about the idea of like 
what it means to have, be involved in prophecy. Can you change things that are meant to be faded? You know, how much agency do we have if we think that we're part of like a greater plan? A lot of really interesting discussions. And, and I think that's at least from my non-book reader, um, kind of an interesting piece uh, of this fiction. Um, one thing that's less serious, perhaps, that I don't think the movie talks about, and I know the books do. Now, is Spice Worm semen? Is that true? Tristan, I'm going to pass this one off to you. Yeah, yes and no. It, it's like <laughs> worm detritus. Oh. Basically, they like poop spice okay. and it like mates. It mates with like primordial matter, matter and stuff on the planet and through a mystical process become spice. That's why in the movie they call the worms the maker or the uh, maker because okay. they make spice. Um, also, they are their god. Like uh, the big worm Shai Halud is the god of the Fremen. So he's also a maker in that sense. But yeah, um, so cool. that is weird. I don't know. I don't know if we'll see the there's a really cool scene in the in the book that's like mystical about the making of spice. Mm. I don't know how much of that we'll get in the movie. I, I, I hope we'll get a little bit of it because it is truly kind of a bit of a, a, an interesting reveal uh, when you when you. Yeah, it'd be nice if they like of... connected those things somehow because it seems like. A yeah. pretty important thing that I don't think the movie touched on. So I'd like to hear about that. The other thing that yeah. I want to talk about, which, you know, look, what's new, old is new again. The 90s are back. Big jeans, choker necklaces, those are back. The other thing that happens is in the world of Dune, old names come back. Paul is back. We're in the year. What year are we in in Dune? Like, uh, 2053. Uh, 2053. <laughs> Paul is back. Paul's back. It's something Duncan like it's, it's something like year ten thousand or something like that. Yeah, right? okay. like like you know, we're we're these names it, oh, that we yeah, thought were lame. It's they, ten thousand one hundred ninety-one. You know, Emma is like a big name for for kids these days. You know, all these names they just get recycled, and it's just cyclical. And if you it, do the cycle enough times, Paul is a cool name again. I do really like the names in Dune. I, I think it's I think it's interesting that like a word like Idaho in like <laughs> you know like ten thousand years in the future or whatever would just become yeah. just is kind of just like I want to know what Idaho means in the world of Dune. Is it is it connected to the spiritual Idaho which we know of today? <laughs> the spiritual Idaho, you know, the, the Idaho of the soul. <laughs> yeah, and on in every one of us there are two Idahos. Um, and yeah, like, you know, why is his name Duncan Idaho? Did, you know, there must be, is there a family lineage and they were descended from Idaho and they moved to Caledon? What, what's, what exactly? There is like, actually like a lot of the names do have like a weird meaning like that. Like the Atreides are intended to be like the, um, the heirs to like, like Greek, um, like Greek heroic families right. and stuff. So like, there probably is some weird reason why he's named Duncan Idaho. But um, the name is all slap and they're, they're that name because they're cool. <laughs> I also it. like the, uh, the imagery of the, the bull and the Atreides. And uh, again, like there are probably lots of great thematic interpretations, but I also just like the simple idea of the visual storytelling where that scene where they're packing up all the stuff and they're moving it to Arrakis. And they're like, we got to pack the bullhead. We got to bring the bullhead because the bullhead is our thing. That kind of stuff is, is really great. And uh, yeah, there's a little scene where he's like, yeah, my grandfather got killed by a, by a bull or whatever. Um, but, but just having like some kind of little icon like that connected to the house, like that's the kind of stuff where great genre sci-fi stuff that 
people fall in love with is because they just give you enough hints of a culture or, you know, a people or like the Sardaukar. It's like, do we know anything about them from the movie really except kind of what they look like and that they're good warriors? Not really, but that's so much for someone who loves this stuff and their imagination to build this really cool world and what, and what would it be like in that culture and how would they learn to fight and da da da. That like the whole is such a great symbol for me for that. The silent way the Sadakaros would drop into battles. So, yes. So scary. You know what that it's reminded so me of? Freaky. It, it, what that scene reminded me of when they drop into the, um, that kind of um, science um, lab, like Center. The, eco- the ecology whatever the lab. fuck it was. When the they, that, to me, I was like in the heyday of music videos in like the 90s. That looked like it was a music video shot when like David Fincher was like making music videos and they had this high <laughs> level of production and these weird, cool images that didn't really mean anything to the song. They just looked really cool and stylistic. When I saw that coming on, I was like, there's going to be a Jamiroquai song that starts or something. The He's Foo Fighters are going to start a really big hat and dance around. Like, but, but that, that is such a, that's a, to its great credit, like so many music videos from that era were so um, stylistic and, and cool to watch. And that's why they were awesome at the time. Uh, and I got that vibe so much from that scene for some reason. So someone make, well, you know, it's we've a already got video with the Sardaukar. <laughs> There's all, oh, I've yeah. definitely listened to the like two hour looped Sardaukar uh, throat singing. Uh, oh, yeah. Video, so the joke that launched a million fan cams. That's what they're <laughs> going to be calling that uh, <laughs> later on. I did want to say the one thing that the, the Sardaukar uh, coming down did remind me of. And it's interesting that Greg Frazier shot this movie very much like American special forces, like Navy SEALs or something. It's like we're going to repel in silently into this place and like kill people as quietly as possible. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the vibe that I got, Mm -hmm. especially to a contemporary audience. I think, you know, I feel like there's probably something subliminal going on there talking about military industrial complex. Can can I make one criticism? One criticism. Let's hear it. One criticism is in the fight scenes, especially the ones where there's kind of multiple people fighting. I thought that the like it's clear where it's like, oh, you have to go slow to get through the shield in some of the Mm -hmm. fight scenes. That's not made very clear. Like they're just fighting fast. And there were a few times watching it this time where I was like, it would have been nice if they choreographed this slightly differently. So it was a bit Mm -hmm. more clear that he had to like physically like slow to do the kill. Like uh, some of the yeah. Duncan Idaho fights, I thought he he's just like kind of a whirling dervish. It looks really cool. It's very kinetic, very fun. But they kind of take the the time to establish the like slow blade does the something or other. And mm-hmm. then in some of the fight scenes, I thought they kind of were a bit lazy with that. But, you know, it didn't it didn't matter in the movie ultimately. But that's one my one critique of the movie, I would say, is I wish that was mm-hmm. done a little bit more clearly in the fight scenes. Yeah, I actually agree with you on that one, Tyler. Like, I think, like, in the books, the way the Atreides fight, like, there's this school of fighting that they do mm. called the Weirding Way, oh, uh, which is called, oh, which okay. is, like, taken from the, like, inspired by, like, some Benny Generate teachings. Um, but it's, like, a weird method of fighting that they do that no one else knows how to do. Mm. And it isn't, like, the way it's described in the book, it is impossible to picture what it actually looks like <laughs> and it, they don't the same way they take the care to depict a lot of really obscure weird concepts and actually visually depict it in a very cool way yeah. they don't do the same thing with the fighting yeah like they don't i don't get the sense of like 
Like they basically have like this sense that they're doing like micro movements that are uh, like fast and slow at the same time. Yeah. And like, we don't really see that, but yeah. yeah. The, the only part where there was that you kind of were like, okay, this is kind of cool was um, the scene where the Atreides are at the top of the stairs and the Harkonnens are coming from below and they're kind of got, they've got like some people with spears and some people with swords and they're kind of like almost doing like an elven fighting thing like from Lord of the Rings where they're kind of like weaving between each other and then the Sardaukar kind of land behind them. At that part, I was like, oh, cool. Like they actually have like a discernible style here. And then as soon as the fight happens, they're all like, fuck. And then they just start fighting like crazy. Um, so that that's my only criticism. But it still looks great. But it doesn't, I don't think it exactly nails it. But that's, I mean, fight choreography is hard at the best of times. So I'll get cut them some slack there. And when Before they do we nail- get, oh, oh sorry. Sorry, sorry just, to cut say, you off. When they do nail the slow blade thing, like there's the, the Duncan going through uh, when he's like just going through the palace after the attack. Yeah. There's a couple like kills where he yes. like, kills a couple mm-hmm. of Sadakar, yeah. where he like really does do the slow blade yeah. thing. And that's looks great. Sick. It looks so good. Yeah. 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 So Tyler, I know uh, you're pressed for time soon. So um, one thing I want to make sure we get from you is your recomradation. So a piece of media or a life experience or something you've been enjoying. Great question. Okay, I've got a good one, actually. And you know what? Let's hear it. It's funny because I've been digging into these. Speaking of genre fiction, Malazan Book of the Fallen. Ooh, oh, interesting. this is the big one. So this is the funny thing. I'll just tell a very quick story about this. I never heard of the, this series of books. They're kind of high epic fantasy books written by a Canadian author, Stephen Erickson, that are quite lauded, but I'd never heard of before. Um and, you know, I was like a fantasy nerd kid. I love this stuff. And, and these somehow never came across. I never came across. I was reading a review for a metal album, um, a death metal album. The author was comparing this album to the experience of reading the Malazan books because it's such a big, weighty commitment and you really have to be along for the journey. And it's super long and challenging, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. Started listening to the audiobook. So I highly recommend the um, the narrators in the audiobooks that they get are absolutely top notch British guys, of course. Um, and, um, you know, these books are, I think the most complicated world building and fantasy books you could ever have where like each book has a completely new set of 30 characters, the, the lore within the book, not even just referenced, like effectively, if you were to think about it in our timeline, like goes back to Neanderthal times and then to the present. And, um, the, the world building is great. I think for fantasy books, the degree of um, like li- li- um, uh, style that he writes in is is phenomenal. The different types of characters, cultures that are very fully realized, amazing. If you are in the mood for some like a project, truly a project, it is. I believe uh, I'm right in saying this. The longest, so the main series is ten books. I think the shortest one is like seven hundred pages. It is like the longest series, fantasy series by kind of page count and word count. And then there are a handful, I think two or three, and there's one still ongoing kind of side um, uh, series that are kind of two or three books each. It is truly a project. But if you want something that's going to last you for like a few years that you can chip away at and really get something out of, Malazan Book of the Fallen, check it out. Tyler, I'm seeing here that there's uh, giant intelligent lizards with sword arms. Yes, the Kachin Chamal. Yes, I am sold. Yes, it, that's all. You they have to they actually like. It's very crazy. The types of concepts from like that race of um, or that species of 
of dinosaur thing like invents the concept of like space time and black like a black hole and and it's very it's very cool i i highly highly recommend it and if you just like some good old fantasy like kind of knights on horses and um like a little bit of magic here and there and dragons and shit you got to do it highly recommend it it's right. been a pleasure. Sorry, I have to leave. Um, you know, I'm the bad boy of socialism, which means I have three children. So I have to go <laughs> put them to bed. Uh, anyway, Dune, the movie rocks. I am very excited to come back on the pod again soon to discuss the next time one of our boys does something good, except for Yellowstone, which I refuse to watch that movie. But uh, <laughs> Yellowstone no, rules. I'm a Yellowstone guy. Is it good? My All my family loves it. it. We should watch I'm Tulsa should... King. Yeah, we should watch Tulsa King. I'm we sure I would love Yellowstone. Tulsa King. We should do... Tulsa King is not that good, but we Yellowstone We should do Arrakis works. King. A spinoff. <laughs> True. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been a slice, everyone. Thanks so much for having me, Evan. And uh, very, very nice speaking to you all again. Goodbye. Good to see you. Um, yeah, let, let's go around. Let's talk about sort of our overall thoughts on, on this interpretation of Dune, our thoughts on this first film, um, and then we can do some quick recomradations. So, Sean, do you want to go first? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's no, it's no surprise if you've been listening to this whole thing, which if you haven't, I, I don't really understand what's, what's going on with you <laughs> because it be like an hour and a half. But uh, I, I, I really love this movie. I, I think it was uh, uh, a type of movie that you really don't see a lot of. Um, and again, like, I really don't think we've, we've seen much of its kind since uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which is a really high budget, quality, thoughtfully and seriously made um, adaptation of a piece of uh, genre fiction. And... and I think the seriously made part is the thing that like really resonates with me, which is uh, Denis really, you know, he, uh, as the kids would say, understood the assignment and he really wanted to take this seriously, put a lot of effort into it. And everyone involved in it seemingly also put a lot of effort and time into it, like from the costume designers to the set designers to it, just everyone who worked on the films to really care about it and wanted to wanted to seriously succeed. So I think that it's, you know, nothing short of a triumph. I think the people who are like, oh, it's kind of joyless and, and it doesn't have enough color and there's not a wacky uh, talking uh, dog or whatever. It's like, look, like there's a lot of movies that are like that. If you want to go watch those movies, I wanted to watch like an intense grimdark movie about the, one of the worst possible futures we could ever hope for. Uh, and people trying to navigate their lives in this awful future. And it really, you know, it gives you that. And and I think it's, it's uh, uh, you know, a, a notoriously difficult to adapt piece of uh, fiction that's made very legible and thoughtful. And that really, as Tristan said earlier, strips everything away to the bare necessities, hones in on them and tells them really, really, really well in a way that, uh, I mean, I, I, I could recommend to anyone and, and be pretty certain that they would enjoy it and get a lot out of it. So uh, I think that that's uh, really something to be celebrated. I think there should be more movies like this, honestly. It's kind of sad that there's not. I think the only other recent thing I've seen uh, in the last couple of years that I could even compare to it is maybe Andor, which was also a huge surprise. And I also think was mostly good because of pre-production and everyone working on it, caring about it a whole lot. Um, but again, these things seem to be anomalies, um, like like really good, really interesting pieces of, of sci-fi or fantasy that are taken very seriously and have something to say. 
we should treasure them and protect them and uh you know keep the keep the the light of uh uh history going i think i i would even throw a bone and say avatar and avatar 2 are 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 it within this lineage mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but i i i think i i think i don't know they're they're James Cameron's batting to a bit of a broader audience, I think, with them, which which is yeah. fine because he's trying to uh, uh, fundamentally alter the uh, human consciousness one film at a time. But I, I, you know, it's it's I think films like this are are really something, and and uh, I think it's it's important that we 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 you know treasure them and, and value them. And I mean, I saw it in theaters twice <laughs> because I'm free. Same. And Kate saw it in theaters three times, so... Let's go. Yeah, yeah, let's go. So between us, we've supported Dune five times. Five Dune tickets, please. What's book five of Dune? Is that Heretics of Dune or Chapter House Dune? I'm not sure. Uh, Chapter House is the last one written by Frank. That might be six. Ballers of Dune. (laughs) Ballers of Dune. (laughs) Brawlhalla of Dune. Tristan, (laughs) uh, what do you think about Dune? You like it? Yes, I like Dune. Uh, I, I think this movie has revealed to me that there should be a new law passed uh, where every director that reaches a certain threshold of like output, like makes a certain distance in their career, should have to adapt Dune. And I also think the budget that they get for it should be randomized within a certain range. And every single movie would be different and would tell a different story and mm-hmm. that's like that's one what makes dune impossible to ad- adapt and it's amazing that this turned out this well but two also reveals like the richness of the source material it's like the bible where you could draw anything you want out of it like you could write whatever type of jesus you want into the jesus that's in the bible i think dune is the same way uh that you can make a lot of different movies out of the source material and this one was Denny Villeneuve style, who is already one of my favorite directors. Um, like he gets to express that style using Dune, one of my favorite uh, novels. And it's great. So I'm glad it happened. Um, I have never been more afraid than when they pushed the movie back because it was supposed to come out during like yeah. COVID times, like earlier in COVID times. So they pushed it back a year. I was like, is this movie not going to happen? Because like someone's going to have to. Oh, I, I was so worried that it was just to be never going to come out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I am. I am ride or die for this movie. I really love it. And each time I watch it, I get something new and it, it has a richness to it that I, I just appreciate so much. And it's like visually and also tonally, I think tone is probably what I appreciate about this film the most, like how it builds dread, um, that sense of adventure of like genuine awe. Um, and I, I think there are, you know, a handful of movies coming out today that I would compare it to um, besides for Lord of the Rings, as we've talked about. Um, but I think the the last two films of the Planet of the Apes trilogy, I think, are are comparable to what they're doing in sort of like a visual sense or their ambitions. Um, and a, a movie I'm talking about a lot because it's always on my head, the Batman, like a three hour crime film and i think the immersion is very similar where it's like the directors com- like created this total world that for the story to take place and i think dune accomplishes that on a much larger scale of course right because there are all of these civilizations and worlds and their interconnectedness to each other um 
unfortunately star wars besides for andor and a couple other things has uh, given up on trying so this is <laughs> this is what we've got and you know no more a cut i don't want to say no more star wars only good star wars from now on you know they have to, someone has to watch it and then say yes or no you know just it's I like, think we're going to get another like eight years of bad Star Wars before we get anything good again. Yeah, that's just yeah. The, that's just the, the 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 sacrifice that has to be made in order to summon something like Andor into the you, world. You're right, and like I to be Mandalorian negative, it's a show I enjoy, but I watched the new trailer for it, and after experiencing Andor, I was like, "We're back to this shit." Yeah, like, it's, it's, are you it's serious? Flock for babies. It's it's. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry, Tristan. If you're a Mandalorian defender, I love that show. No, I don't watch any of this, and I like making fun of Evan for putting himself through watching yeah. all the Star Wars stuff, because most of it's garbage. All of it. I watch all of it. I love Star Wars. Like, literally, I think the only Star Wars, besides for Andor, that I can unreservedly say I love are the books right now. The fucking that High Republic so books. so fucking crazy. It's, yeah. That's, that's almost as crazy as the TNG first season thing that Tyler said. Yeah. It's like, I will read... Very fun, interesting trilogies of books set 200 to 250 years before Phantom Menace. Anything that's current with Star Wars, it's like, oh, God, why did you do that? Bad Batch is good. I have fun watching that. But seriously, man, and this is I think this is relevant to our conversation about Dune. Like seeing the trailer for The Mandalorian, it's like their storytelling priorities are so fucked because I think the int- the opening of that show when Jon Favreau I think was very clearly the creative voice behind it was interesting because it's like, okay, we're going to be doing genre and tone. Like it's a Western. We're going back to Kurosawa. It's, you know, these barren planets. It's a, a Western thing. Um, and Ooh, it's there's bounty some mystery. hunters. Yeah. Bounty hunters. Cool. Star Wars, a very, spe- a very specific story. Now they are completely bought into the Marvel storytelling formula where we need to build up to a big villain, grand Admiral Thrawn across multiple shows and the trailer, that's all it's about. It's like, oh, there's something dark coming. What? I thought this show was about like seeing like and I would love an episodic show where it's like, oh, he has to go to this planet. There are weird people on it and he has to catch this guy or do this thing. That's a cool show. Yeah. And that's and, what the first season was. And it was good. And then it yeah. became bad. <laughs> and then, OK, the book of Boba Fett is so unbelievably bad there. Are, I, I would say there are two good episodes when he's doing Tuscan stuff. I was like, wait, this is interesting. And then the rest of the show is literally baby formula. Um, and Kenobi, <laughs> Kenobi, I think, suffers the same f- problem where it's like I would say there's probably 50 good minutes in there uh, of a six episode show. So, you know, and take then- from that what you will. And then Andor comes out of nowhere and is like genuinely, I think, one of the best TV shows I've seen in recent memory. It's, yeah. It's, and this is from a level, level, the A grade Star Wars hater. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the haters that's a motivator for Star Wars. <laughs> and I will say that Andor was a good ass show and I really enjoyed it. And I had to be dragged kicking and screaming into it. But yeah. God damn, it was good. When, yeah. Uh, like the, the little robot was even good because he was sad because he Fuck. they had to take he's like an old dog that was like about to be put down and but he was a little robot oh yeah God. stutter are, are, are you sure i'm going to be okay all this fucking yes. shit i want to take care of because okay this is the thing it's all about production like yeah it is i with, really do think that it, it is all about production it's about it's about to, a bunch of people who care about this work on it 
Yeah. And I think for The Mandalorian, I think for the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, I think for the book of Boba Fett, it was just people going through the motions because it was something they had to do. Whereas mm-hmm. Andor was a bunch of people coming together and making something that they wanted to make. I think you can really tell that. And, yeah. and it, it really shines through. Sorry, Evan. Yes, no, it's all about yeah. production. Yeah, because I think with with the Mandalorian, it's 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 a two person production between John Favreau, who's like a tech guy, and like he's also a story guy. He loves working with new gadgets and gizmos, um, like with the Lion King, um, Iron Man, and he was interested in telling a genre story. Dave Filoni, God rest his soul, he's still alive. Um, he <laughs> to say did he die? <laughs> Well, spiritually, he's dead. Um, he, he basically apprenticed under George Lucas for how to tell Star Wars stories when they were making Clone Wars. And it, all of his worst impulses are in The Mandalorian, where it's like, OK, we're going to tell a story about the Mandalorian. OK, one guy. We're doing a lone wolf and cub story. Season two. It's freaking Luke Skywalker. Uh, OK. Oh, here's all this stuff about Thrawn and all the connections to the sequel trilogy. Season three. Oh, we're going back to Mandalore and it's going to be all the Mandalorians that I wrote in Clone Wars and Rebels. And oh, I'm going to get the Rebels guys back and it's going to be this big villain. And then they're all going to have to fight the big villain who is. Oh, sorry. The big villain, Grand Admiral Thrawn, is just a guy. He's just a blue guy. He's Sherlock Holmes who can do ships good. And then he just talks to his Watson and he's like, we're going to pull this maneuver. And then he's like a brilliant move, Admiral. Granted, Thrawn rules. Thrawn is sick. Do I does that? That needs to be the story now in the Mandalorian. There needs to be a, a whole meta story that they're saying. So season three of this fucking show is gonna have no character development besides for I guess being in a Mandalorian cult is wrong. Wow, it took three seasons for us to get there. And then we need to see, and this guy is playing Grand Admiral Thrawn. And I guess you'll have to watch Mandalorian season four, Mandalorian season five, and then a Star Wars event. Grand Admiral Thrawn fucks up the galaxy. And then at the end of it, it's added nothing to the greater Star Wars story. Well, no, so no, it ends already. Yeah, they're going to beat him. Sorry, Ahsoka is going to stab him <laughs> or they're going to bring they're bringing Ezra back from Rebels. And then he's going to be like, Grand Admiral Thrawn, I've had enough of your bullshit and then stab him. Um, or no, he's going to the ship is going to be on fire. And then they're going to be like, Grand Admiral Thrawn, get off. And he's like, oh, I'm a captain. I need to go down with the ship. And it's going to blow up. And then that's it. That's all you can expect from it. Right. And it's like Star Wars has stopped being surprising and has stopped being like novel or interesting and or was novel and interesting and it was from a perspective it was tony gilroy scars stone scar i'm tired exactly again it's 125 in wales we'll be done soon i'm sorry but the magic <laughs> sauce of stellan Skarsgård and good writing from the guy who fucking did michael clayton come together and he fucking has disney by the balls because they were probably like oh yeah you'll do eight episodes and he's like no i'm doing a full television show well, I'm going to do fucking like 15 episodes or whatever. And there's going to be like three or four arcs and you're going to have to pay for real sets. I'm not working in the fucking LED light wall screen that made Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi look like a commercial. Like, so yeah, they, they, they have, built all of um like the Rick's the town or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's all real. It's like a movie. Oh, it's like wow. how they make movies. They have to spend money and make costumes and oh, do some work. And oh, and the guy who fucking wrote Michael Clayton, again, one of the best movies of the 21st century is like, what if I did Star Wars and it was really good? And it's the same thing with Dune. What if we got interesting, good creatives and we gave them like two hundred million dollars and it's like, go out in the desert and have fun. And look, we did all this production work. Here's the coolest looking ornithopter you could ever imagine. Oh, here are all these powerful visuals. And then they make it. 
and there's no there's no sequel bait at all, even though they're making a sequel. They just walk into the desert and they're like, okay, we got to go do this. And then they're going to be like, oh, the guy who played Elvis is going to be the main villain. And they're going to have fucking uh, Christopher Walken as the emperor of space. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That's yeah. so God. And Florence Pugh is going to be his wife while oh, Zendaya gets to be his concubine. Brilliant minds are working yeah. on Dune to make James Cameron level films that will change human consciousness. So, yes, I liked Dune. <laughs> that, Evan, that was an insane rant. And it was really good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and, and, and just I guess to add on that is to bring it again back to my hobby horse right now, which is Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, it had like five years of pre-production. Um, a lot of work went into it. Uh, you can see like they, they like there's like pictures of like the people who like made all of the, like the Yurikai helmets standing with them like three years before filming even started. Mm-hmm. The Hobbit, they were writing the script while they were filming it. Yeah. And we all remember and love those movies, right? <laughs> we have a genuine fondness for watching all three extended cuts of The Hobbit uh, over the course I, of a you weekend. Would ha- you would have to be pointing a fucking gun at me to make me watch yeah. all three of those goddamn movies. Yep. That's a layer in Dante's Hell, and it was really weird when in the 1200s he wrote, there's a level of hell where you just have to watch... <laughs> three movies! Where Judas is being... Judas Iscariot is being made to watch... Uh, the Hobbit 2 Desolation of Smog extended. Yeah, and he has a lot of opinions about Florence, Florence's politics. <laughs> uh, the Jude, Judas looking to a demon saying, why does it hurt so much? And the demon replies, because it was real. <laughs> um, let's, let's get into recomradations. I think we've covered Dune and also Star Wars and Lord of the Rings sufficiently. Let's get into recomradations, fan favorite segment where we talk about the pieces of media, life experiences, or anything else under the sun that we've enjoyed this week that we want to pass along to you, the Kino Lefter audience. Who would like to start this week? I can start. Okay, so I have a recommendation. Uh, I, as I've been, get, as I've gotten older, as I've aged, I have uh, degraded in my intellectual capacity, and I no longer read books. <laughs> I watch f- like five-hour academic lectures on youtube instead (laughs) and what i've been watching lately is there's this youtube channel of a strange christian sect in toronto uh called the community of christ which is an a very progressive kind of leftist offshoot of mormonism but they're no longer mormon anymore like they're a little bit mormon but not really uh and they have this youtube channel called center place where and they have this religious studies scholar who like is just a member of the church there and he comes in and gives these amazing lectures um and there's so many of them online so center place spelled the canadian way the right way center re um you can find them online and they're great lectures about history and religious studies so like um i was a religious studies minor in university we've been talking about dune very much about religion and its effects on culture if you have any interest at all in these topics, it is a great YouTube channel. Um, yeah, they have cool stuff about how the different books of scripture were written and who at what times considered different books heresy and how these things have made it into our cultural understandings uh, and about different faiths. If uh, Christianity you're not interested in or you've heard enough about, I don't blame you. But like, there's a lot of discussion about mysticism and Islam, for example, which we've been talking about a lot today. Very good channel. So center place on YouTube is my recommendation. I could go next, Sean, if you want some more time to think about your. No, I have mine. I'm just embarrassed okay. about it. Okay. Let's, so I'd love uh, to hear it. 
uh, I'm embarrassed about it because I haven't shut the fuck up about it, which is I, I literally today just finished uh, rereading Lord of the Rings. Uh, like I, I literally on the bus to work this morning, I, I, I finished the last little bit where Sam gets home, sits down with his uh, wife and child and says, now I'm back single tear rolling down my eye as <laughs> I'm in a bus full of 16 year olds going to the college I teach at. Um, whereas uh, it's, uh, I, I just have to say for, for anyone who hasn't read the series in a while or anyone who's is being maybe scared off by actually reading the books, who's seen the films, they're really good books and they're easier to read and, and a lot more digestible than you may remember if uh, like me, you you tried reading them when you were like, I don't know, like 14 and you really bounced off of them because they wouldn't stop singing about songs or talking about uh, or singing songs or talking about the different uh, delicious meals they ate. Turns out when you're an adult, you actually like the parts where they sing songs and talk about the delicious meals they ate and are just basically a bunch of friends hanging out because it's nice. And it's, it's like a, a, a series of very thoughtful, very beautiful books um, that, you know, have their problems. There's actually a, an interesting article in Jackman recently that was reprinted where it was kind of a analysis of the appeal of Lord of the Rings and a lot of uh, sort of lefty or almost like hippie circles. It really concludes that like it's it's a you know a, a series that while it kind of airbrushes away a lot of the problems of feudalism, <laughs> and uh, you know uh, Tolkien had uh, certainly some some regressive views on on a lot of things. It still does depict this world where you know uh, through like struggle and camaraderie, you know, good can triumph over evil, uh, and and there's this like a, a real sense of uh, this like a. a fighting back against this like encroaching uh, ruinous force of industrial capital uh, represented by uh, Saruman and Mordor. So if you're looking for something that's, uh, you know, um, you know, very, uh, you can really like Malazan sink your teeth into, but is not quite as long or intense. And you probably also understand a lot of the sort of like larger uh, overarching themes and, and uh, you've probably seen the films or familiar with the characters and things like that. I'd say read it if you haven't before. They're really good, and you'll get a lot out of them. And uh, you'll find that there's a lot in those books that, as Tristan said earlier, not present in the films, probably for the, the film's benefits, because they would be extremely unwieldy and hard to watch if it was all included. But yeah, they're, they're a lovely series of books, and you'll hopefully become as Lord of the Rings pilled as I am right now and uh, spend all of your time painting little uh, miniature Games Workshop produced orcs for your Mordor army for the middle earth strategy battle game uh so <laughs> so that is my recommendation other than that i don't know i've been listening to a lot of truant on lately mm. uh <laughs> podcast so i guess that's about it uh so yeah i know i've been kind of a one one note uh uh, uh player this uh this episode but uh i mean you can't hide who i am and i'm a lord of the rings stand through and through i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna shy away from it I think I am sort of the the Tom Bombadil of the Canadian left podcasting community, so I, I do appreciate learning you, you, more about my heritage. Your your uh, your wife guy, mm -hmm. uh, you uh, live by a little river. Uh, yeah, which I mean by that I mean Edmonton, North Saskatchewan. Um, yeah, and um, uh, you have a penchant for uh, uh, skipping around, singing songs, and freeing hobbits from uh, perilous situations. Which I've known you to do several times throughout our, our, our friendship. So I think that is actually a very, very adequate comparison. Thank you. Um, I, I was thinking about my recommendation. First of all, with all the Star Wars, uh, you know, negativity that I brought, 
Last Jedi is a great movie. I love The Last Jedi. I love revisiting it. That's my one compliment I'll give the Star Wars feature films right now. I'm going to recommend a film that is almost the complete polar opposite of Dune, um, where it's a great cast led by a very bad director for a very stupid film that is still kind of enjoyable. It's the 2002 film Detox, a.k.a. ICU, directed by Jim Gillespie, starring Sylvester Stallone. So uh, this film, uh, I watch great movies with my brother. Uh, it's it's always a negotiation of what films to watch. Uh, and this time I was like, we both love Stallone. We both love watching Stallone movies. So I was like, we have both not seen Detox, a.k.a. ICU. Um, this film was so bad. Um, it started off as just a slasher film with Sly Stallone in the lead. The plot is about a disgraced FBI agent uh, who something bad happens to him in the opening of the film. I won't spoil it. Um, he becomes an alcoholic and then has to go to a detox center, which looks like a missile silo from the movie Goldeneye in the middle of the BC forest because they obviously shot it in Vancouver because they didn't have that much money. And the cast, this is also one of the other points of comparison with Dune, goes so hard. Sylvester Stallone, Charles S. Dutton, Chris Christopherson, Jeffrey Wright, Courtney B. Vance, Robert Patrick, and Stephen Lang, Colonel Miles Quaritch himself from Avatar. So if you want a very 5 out of 10 film um, that is clearly two separate movies spliced together, um, like it was so bad it was shelved for like a year and a half. Uh, The studio watched it and they were like, Christ, we can't release this. And then they added more action and it's a mess. But I thought it was kind of fun. It's on Netflix. You can only search it by looking up ICU because the movie was originally called Detox in Europe, where it had a limited theatrical release, was pulled from theaters and then came back a year later with a different title. So I'm looking at the poster right now, it looks like Sylvester Stallone, uh, like rendered in like uh, sort of like early, like like late 90s, like uh, uh, I would say maybe like um uh like a serious sam style level graphics uh sylvester stallone like it, it's he, he he looks like max Payne. i gotta say yeah he, he, he's got a max Payne looking ass face he looks like a jpeg stretched over a 3d model here uh it's not looking good for him yeah uh, it's it's pretty enjoyable and plus you get like i mean one of my favorite actors of all time jeffrey wright is in this and he's just doing a voice And he has a couple ticks and it's like, I love seeing someone extremely talented go into a movie and they're like, I got one thing. I'll try it out. And he tries it out. Um, And again, Charles S. Dutton delivers my favorite film monologue of all time in Alien 3. He's in this movie and I got so happy whenever I saw him. Charles S. Dutton at the screen. Um, If I were a film director, which I'm thinking of pivoting into, um, I would call up Charles S. Dutton immediately and be like, sir, are you interested in being in this mumblecore film? Um, And he would say yes. So (laughs) you should do that, please. That's the episode. Um, Sean, Tristan, Tyler, who's currently not with us. Thank you so much for joining the episode. Um, Before we get into plugs, you know, we have a discord. We have a Facebook group, Patreon. There's going to be episodes up on there. There's one about Love is Blind on there right now. There's going to be some other fun episodes soon. Um, So let's hear from you both. Do you want people to follow you on the computer? Do you have anything that you're that you want people to see? What's up with that? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at at Williton, which is W-I-L-L-E-T-O-N. But uh, I don't really tweet anymore. 
I've been kind of thinking about getting back into the game, but it probably would be bad for my mental health considering that I just like, I don't know, I, it's a, it's a bad website mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, I left for, uh, for reasons um, that uh, I don't want to talk about. Ugh, my canceling, just kidding. I just wasn't You're really telling the truth, yeah, telling exactly. the truth about a certain war. I'm not going to exactly. say which. No, that's right. The War of the Ring. Um, but uh, no, I, I, you can follow me on Instagram. I post uh, miniature painting pics and pics of my life in Wales. Um, so you can, you can follow me there. And as always, I'll also just plug the Alberta Advantage. We have a new episode coming out soon about Danielle Smith. Um, I'm not super involved with the pod right now, but uh, uh, I'm still tangentially related. I also have a Discord there, which I hang out in. So if you... You know, want to hear more uh, Alberta politics from a left-wing perspective? Uh, I know that we're only a second second fiddle to you here, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, damn right, if, Alberta if you, disadvantage. If you want the silver medal, uh, you can you can go find uh, Alberta advantage. Hi, Tristan here. I don't have anything to plug, so uh, you know this has been great. I've had a good time. Except if you're a student at the University of Alberta. In March, there is going to be election, sorry, end of February, first couple days of March, there's going to be election for APERG's student fee. We're a fee that gives money to groups like um, Canadian Students Against uh, for a Sensible Drug Policy, Palestinian Solidarity Network, cool leftist radical organizing groups at the University of Alberta. We're asking you to give us $3.50 a semester. Please vote yes. For that student elections are a joke and usually a waste of people's time so i don't blame you for not being interested but please do that at least so we can redistribute that money both so i can eat because i'm employed by them but also because bias but yes conflict of interest <laughs> but also because uh yeah money goes towards people that are doing cool things so yeah that's it Yep, APERG is great. Uh, think about my mind. I served there on the board. Uh, incredible people like me are there. Some of them don't have podcasts, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> and it's it, APERG is a cornerstone of the of the organizing community in Edmonton. So if if you know students there, if you are a student there, you should vote early, vote often. I'm not going to say do voter fraud, but just vote the one time and then. But you're not you know, saying not to do voter fraud. Exactly. Um, So uh, that's the episode, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I will see you all again next week on the podcatcher of your choice. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Tino Lefter is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. You can find great leftist Canadian podcasts like Big Shiny Takes, 49th Parahel, Le Plancher de Vache, Habiti Please, Alberta Advantage, Tech Won't Save Us, and The Progress Report on the network. To find out more and become a supporter of the network, head over to harbingermedianetwork.com. 